I want to I want to welcome you into a series that we're going to start today and it'll continue through the end of the year through a beautiful New Testament letter that just has tremendous application for so many different aspects of our lives today. And that is the letter of first John. Uh, and the title of this series is community on mission. So through this letter, as we look at this letter, we're going to be looking at this letter through the lens of asking the question, what does it look like for us as Christ followers to live in community? Because we're going to talk in a second that God calls us into community. And then what does it look like to live in community with Jesus at the center? And then join Jesus to participate in his work in the world, to participate in his mission in our schools, in our workplaces and in our families. And as we dive into this morning, here, here's what you're going to get. You are going to get a very long introduction. You're welcome. Followed by a very short sermon. A long introduction, short sermon. So here we go. So as we get started, I want to talk about these two words, community and mission. Because we need to understand that when Jesus calls us to follow him, he invites us into community. Do we each make a profession of faith personally? Yes, of course we do. But when Jesus calls us to follow him, he invites us into community. That in fact, community is central to the Christian story. You go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Adam and Eve, they lived in community. In fact, before the creation of Eve, the only thing that God says was not good was that Adam was alone. Right? You go a few chapters later to Genesis chapter 12 and God calls Abram, who would become Abraham. And what does God say to him? He says, Abraham, I am going to make you a great nation. He doesn't say, I'm going to make you a great individual with your own sitcom and a million Instagram followers. He says, no, no, I'm going to make you part of something great, right? And then God, later in the book of Exodus, he calls Moses as an individual, but what does he call him to do? He calls him to lead the nation of Israel out of slavery so that they might worship God in freedom. And then so much of the rest of the New Testament is this nation, Israel, the people of God, trying to work out what does it mean to live in community as God's people. And if you know the scriptures, you know that they had a lot of success and a lot of failure, but the bottom line is they were a community, they were together. And then if you look at the life of Jesus, he comes on the scene and what does he do? He calls 12 disciples to live in community so that he could teach them and instruct them. But more than that, so that they could live their lives together, investing in one another. And did he talk about personal faith? Did he talk about the need to be born again? Yeah, he sure did. But he also talked about a thing called the church. A community of people who are drawn together with Him at the center. And what did He say? The gates of hell cannot stand against it. That Jesus, when He calls us to follow, He does not call us to remain in isolation. He calls us into community. And that has remained true since the time of Jesus up until now. Now, if you've been around Bridgeway for a while, you have heard me talk about this on different occasions, and you're going to hear me talk about it again in the future, and I'm going to keep talking about it, because as our society becomes more and more isolated, as so many in our society, what we do is we settle for pseudo-community, which is not bad, it's just insufficient. As more and more of us do that, the problems of isolation are only going to increase, and the opportunity we have to witness to the world with our sense of community, our love for one another, is going to increase. 
And over the course of the last decade, I just find this research so fascinating. Different healthcare professionals are coming to find out that loneliness and isolation is literally becoming a public health crisis. In fact, there was a big article in The Economist just this week. It came out this week. There was a study funded by The Economist and the Kaiser Family Foundation. And what they were doing was they were analyzing loneliness and social isolation in the United States, in Japan, and in Great Britain. And this is what they found. They found that in the United States, one out of every five adults says this. They say that they often or always feel lonely feel that they lack companionship, feel left out, or feel isolated from others. One in five. One in five adults feels that way. And there are two things about that number that you need to understand. Number one, it's rising. It is not falling. Those numbers are only increasing. And number two, they're increasing across demographics, but they're increasing the most among young adults that young adults are feeling more and more and more socially isolated. The article referenced a quote by a man named Vivek Murphy, who used to be the Surgeon General of the United States, and he described isolation as literally an epidemic. And he likened the physical effects of isolation to be comparable to the, to the physical effects of obesity or the physical effects of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It is no exaggeration to say that isolation is a public health crisis. And that doesn't even begin to touch the problems of antisocial behavior or so much of the polarization we see in our world. Because what happens, what happens if I don't share meals with or talk to or share conversations with people who look different than me or act different than me or have a different background than I do or maybe believe different than me or have different cultural tra- traditions than I do? What's going to happen? First of all, I'm going to be ignorant. If all I'm around is myself and people like me, I'm going to be ignorant. And number two, I'm going to be suspicious. Because ignorance breeds suspicion. And again, so much of the polarization we see in our world comes from ignorance. Why? We don't know each other. And it's really easy to caricature someone that you don't have to look in the eye. And it's really easy to hate somebody when you're not sharing a table with them. Isolation has extraordinary consequences. And it is an extraordinary problem. And I share all of this information with you for two reasons. Number one. If you are in that place, if those numbers hold in this room, 20% of us, one out of every five would say, yes, I feel that way. I've had people come up to me throughout the weekend who says, you just described me. If that's you, I need you to understand something. Ironically, you're not alone. I mean, you are, but you're not. Like, you see what I'm trying to say here, right? You're not the only one who feels this way. Because listen, I mean, every single one of us, including me, we walk in here with baggage this morning, right? Like not one of us is walking in here clean. And one of the ways that our baggage gets to us is because there's that little voice, and I believe it's the voice of the enemy saying, hey, you know, you're the only one, right? Hey, hey, look, look how happy that couple is. Your, your, your marriage is the only one that's struggling. Hey, look how well behaved those kids are. You're, you're the only one whose kids had a meltdown on the way to church this morning. <laughs> That's definitely not true. You know? Hey, hey, look how happy, clappy, and smiley everyone is. You're the only one who's depressed. You're the, look how, how friendly everybody seems. You're the only one who's isolated. And it is just not true. And I think that's part of the reason why God calls us together in community because I've, I've seen this in my life as a pastor. I've seen this as my life in my life as a human. I've experienced it myself. There is such power to sit with another person, to hear another person's story, and to realize, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one. 
I'm not the only one. So I need you to understand, if you're feeling isolated, you are not the only one. There are so many of us who are struggling with this, and part of what we're trying to do as a church is to help, okay, how do we, how do we combat that? How do we bring those who are isolated into community? And the second reason I tell you is this, is that we don't talk about community here at Bridgeway. We don't talk about missional communities here at Bridgeway because we have a lot of market research that says, man, church attenders in Placer County are just saying, man, I'm feeling really underscheduled. Can you give me something else to add to my calendar? Nobody's saying that, or almost nobody's saying that. We don't, we don't tell you that. We don't talk about that stuff because we think you need something else to do. But here's what I know to be true, and I wrestle with this in my own life. Is, I mean, we're all busy, and I get that. But we're busying ourselves with activities that leave us feeling drained and leave us feeling isolated from one another instead of things that leave us feeling connected to one another. So what we want to do is we want to talk about missional community. Why? Not because you need something else to do, but because there's value in being together. We offer classes like The Path. Why? Not because we know that you're just desperate for something to add to your calendar on a Tuesday night, but because we've seen the power of people coming together and talking about the most important issues of life and faith. There's power in that. We're made for community. I mean, listen, I mean, just, just consider that research I was just telling you about. This is just wild to me. Our bodies are physically rejecting isolation. (laughs) Why? Because God made us for community. Because there is a God in heaven and he made us for community. Community matters. So that's something we're always going to talk about here at Bridgeway. But we're going to invest this next season in talking about it a little bit more intently as we discuss this book of 1 John. And listen, we're a big church. Like, I get that. There's a lot of us here today. And the point of this this sermon series and the point of this, this message today is not, hey, we all need to become everybody's friend. Like, I don't know about you. I just don't have that kind of relational bandwidth. Right? But the point is, is that we would all find our people that we would find places to connect, that we would find community, that we would be a large church community made up of smaller communities. So that's community. Then mission. That brings us to this word mission. God built us for community, but he also built us for mission. What do I mean by that? I mean that God has designed each and every one of us who's a Christ follower to participate in his work in the world. Mission can happen on the other side of the world, and mission can happen in your office. Mission can happen in your home. Mission can happen on your street. And, and listen, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word mission or when you talk about living on mission. Some of you are like, yes, I'm all in. I know what that means. I, I want to join God in the work he's doing in my community, in my workplace. Absolutely. I'm on, I'm all in. I want to live on mission. And if that's you, fantastic. Others of you, you hear phrases like live on mission and you immediately get nervous and you think, you're not going to make me do something weird, are you? Some of you, let's just be honest. We hear that and that's what we think. Because here, But here's the thing. Listen, mission, living on mission, joining God in the work he's doing in the world is awkward when it's forced. Right? It's awkward when it feels like an obligation. It's awkward if we just have a little circular definition of what mission looks like. We're trying to fit the square peg of our life into this round hole. And it just doesn't work. It's frustrating. But here's the good news. Mission is life-giving when it's in line with your gifts. When you, have a, when you have an understanding of how God made you, when you're joined up with a community of people because mission flows out of community, and, and it's a community of people and you're just saying, God, how have you called us to bring your peace into our neighborhood or into our workplace or into our school? That is life-giving. Why? Because you were made for it. 
Because you were made for it. A lot of you, if you don't, if you only know me from this, like we haven't spent a lot of time together and you've only kind of seen me up st- on, on stage, this might come as a little bit of, of a surprise to you, but I actually have a pretty strong introvert streak. I mean, actually, I like being around people and, and I get energized by that and I, and I love being with people that I know, but you put me in a room full of strangers, man, if you could just monitor my anxiety, it would just be up, 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 up. Uh, and I've had many experiences in my life where I've gone to a place where I just don't know anybody and I'm just like, okay, yep, can't handle that, I'm out. <laughs> and why do I share that with you? Because I think a lot of times when we talk about mission, when we talk about living missionally, when we talk about joining God and His mission in the world, we think that people that do that are people with outsized personalities and are super extroverted and, and could just talk to anyone, anytime, anywhere, and it's natural and it's not uncomfortable. And listen, God made some of you that way and praise God for that. I'm more of a mild social anxiety guy myself, (laughs) right? God didn't make me that way. And I'm guessing for most of us, God didn't make you that way either. But the good news for you is this, that God has called you into mission in a way that lines up with your gifts, in a way that makes sense, in a way that flows out of community, and in a way that is life-giving. So we need to understand God has called us into mission but it's mission that makes sense for us, mission in line with who he's created us to be. So that's community and that's mission. So why First John? First John is in some regards a unique book. It's in length. It's similar to some of the letters of Paul elsewhere in the New Testament, like Galatians and Ephesians. But where it's unique is in its structure. It is very, very different from a lot of the other books in the New Testament. So for example, we just finished studying Philemon. And in Philemon and in a lot of Paul's other books, he starts with an introduction. I, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, to so-and-so and such-and-such, grace and peace to you. And then he gets into it. John just has no time for that. He just, boom, we're going to see this in a minute. From the very first word, he's like, and we're off. We're talking about what I'm here to talk about. So it's got a little bit of a weird introduction, and then it really only gets weirder from there. I love, I was reading this week in uh, the ESV study Bible, which is the study Bible that I use. In its introduction to 1 John, it said this. It said, John rarely sustains a clear line of argument for more than a few lines or verses. And then this is fantastic. He wanders from subject to subject, unencumbered by any discernible outline. (laughs) Kind of like my preaching, praise the Lord. Um, (laughs) Thank you for laughing at that, by the way. If you had all nodded, that would have not been a good day. All right, so so commentators have said that the thought process of the book isn't so much linear, point A to point B, as it is circular. Or I'm not really a music guy, so I can't really develop this, this analogy at all. If you're a music person, you'll, you'll understand it. But it's more like a symphony, where John starts in one place, and he goes somewhere else, and then he returns to the same idea. And then he brings up a new idea, goes somewhere else, and comes back to that idea. So there are different ideas that are brought up again and again and again in the book. And those ideas include ideas like the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus. We're going to see that in our opening verses. And then the centrality of love for one another. So in many regards, this book is a helpful blueprint for Christian community. Because it helps us answer questions like, what are we to believe? What is What are the beliefs of a Christian community? That's something to think through. How are we to act amongst one another? What does it look like to love one another? And then ultimately, what does it look like to love the world? What does it look like to those who aren't with us? Those who, are, do, who don't, do not yet know Christ. And then, as if this weren't obvious enough already, we're going to be studying this book through the lens of community. And that is a totally appropriate lens to study this book through because it is a book written 
for communities. John, writing from Ephesus later in his life, is writing this book for different churches that are meant to read this letter and circulate it. And you're going to see, even in the verses we look at today, there are, in four verses, there are 15 plural pronouns. This is not an I and you situation. It is we are and y'all. Right? We read the Bible, we see you, we read it in first person singular. It is almost never first person singular. It's we are and it is y'all. It's all of us. John is saying, this is what I want for all of you. And again, that just makes sense because Christianity, we just cannot emphasize this enough. Even though individualism is the air that we breathe, Christianity is a communal faith. And in fact, I would submit to you, it does not make sense apart from community. You think about the idea of spiritual gifts, the idea that God has given each one of us gifts. How are you supposed to use your gifts if you're not in community? It's like, I have the gift of helps. I guess I'll help myself. I have the gift of teaching. I'm going to deliver a beautiful sermon to my bathroom mirror. Right? It doesn't make any sense. And on and on we could go. How do you use your gifts if you're not in community? You think about the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's awfully hard to do in isolation. You can't love your neighbor if you don't know your neighbor, right? Or you think about the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, Jesus says. That is really hard to do in isolation, right? So much of what is fundamental to a life of faith only makes sense in community. It only makes sense in community. Now, we're almost ready to open the book, but first a little bit about John. He was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He's the same one who wrote the Gospel of John, the letters of 2nd and 3rd John, and then the book of Revelation. But more than being one of the 12, Jesus had an inner circle of three. They were the closest that you could get to Jesus, and John was one of those three. I think about some friends I met when I first started college. I was a freshman at UCLA and, and four guys and I, we were, we were pledging a Christian fraternity, which believe it or not, that is a thing. And, We were doing that together. We were all freshmen and we started to meet together for accountability, which if you're not a church person, if you haven't heard that term, the idea was we would just meet regularly together to to be intentional about checking in with each other. How are things going? Where are you struggling? How can we pray for you? And that's just what we started to do fall of my freshman year of college. And and we quickly became friends and we would hang out and do other stuff and go to sporting events and just kind of live life in community together. But that Thursday night meeting, we held that meeting for all four years of college. We stayed together that entire time. We spent literally thousands of hours together. And since then, life has taken us to different places, but we're still in touch over text message pretty regularly. And then still once a year, usually on a long weekend in the wintertime, we step away from our lives and we get together, just the five of us, to spend a long weekend together. And we spend half of that weekend pretending that we're 20 years old and have no real responsibilities. And then we spend the other half of that weekend just being very intentional with one another and taking an hour or more each to just share, here's what's going on in my life, here's what this last year has been like, and just really taking time to listen to one another and share with one another. And our wives, by the way, most of us have kids, our wives have very mixed feelings about this weekend. Because on the one hand, they're all like, we know you're a better man because of these friendships. But on the other hand, it's like a holiday weekend and you're leaving me with the kids? Really? Thank you. That's spectacular. But here's the deal. Here's why I bring that up. If I mean, I'm an open book. I'm a pretty open guy. A lot of people know me pretty well. I don't, I don't have anything to hide. But if you really want to know me, you want to know what's important to me, you want to know what really matters to me, you want to know what I'm passionate about, there's my wife and there are these four guys. There is nobody 
who sees more of me in terms of just unfiltered, this is who I am than them. There is nobody who has seen me at my best and my worst like them. There is nobody who, again, knows my heart. As much as I try to live as an open book, there's just nobody who knows me like them. You want to know what I'm about? You want some dirt on me? You want to know what really is going on? You can talk to my wife and you can talk to those four guys. There is no relationship in my life, not my parents, not my kids, not other family members, not any friend I have now that is like those relationships. So why do I bring that up? Because that is the sort of relationship that John had with Jesus. In fact, even at the end of his gospel, John says, and I'm paraphrasing, that listen, I've told you lots of stories about Jesus, but if I told you everything I know, not all all the books in the world would be able to hold all the information I've got. He's saying, if you want to learn about Jesus, I'm your guy. I know some things about Jesus. So what he's doing in this letter that's really beautiful is this letter is written towards the end of his life, sometime after AD, maybe into the 90s. And he's an old man, drawing on the wisdom of a life spent with Jesus, drawing on a life spent serving Jesus, following Jesus' death and resurrection. And he's offering insight and wisdom to these churches in the area. And we're going to learn about some of their struggles and some of the things, some of their difficulties because we're going to see what John had to say about them. And, and in the book, he talks about false belief systems that were plaguing these churches. He talks about the practical implications of our faith and how we think about our actions and how we treat one another. And I mentioned a minute ago, it truly is in many regards a blueprint for what does it look like to build community that is centered on Jesus Christ and then is sent out for mission in the world. And the book begins with Jesus. All of Scripture, if you're new to the Bible, Scripture is a library of books, and but all of Scripture tells one united story with Jesus at the center. Jesus is the point of Scripture. And this book starts with the person and work of Jesus. In fact, if you have your handout or you're, you're on the church app, you can do the fill in the blank if you want, and it's this, that Jesus makes all the difference. That John from chapter 1, verse 1, helps us to see that Jesus makes all the difference. At the, at the risk of stating the obvious, Christian community is community with Jesus at the center. Christian community is community with Jesus at the center. Whether we're studying the scriptures or we're having a barbecue or we're watching a game or we're watching the kids play, we're just being together, whatever it is we're doing, Christian community has Jesus at the center. Why? Because Jesus is the one who shows us what God is like. Jesus is the one who unites us. Jesus is the one who forgives us and reconciles us to God and then sends us out on mission. Jesus is the one, and and so many of us have experienced this, He's the one who amplifies our joy and brings purpose to our pain. Jesus is the center of Christian community. And listen, I really, I believe this and it motivates so much of what I do here at Bridgeway. I believe that the world needs more Christian communities. But what I don't mean by that is that the world needs more church people who just sort of get together and, and, and think highly of Jesus. I think the world needs communities of people who value Jesus above all, who truly want to be formed into his image and want him to form them more than they want so many of the voices in the in our world to form us. And then who say, God, what does it look like then for us to love each other and to go on mission together in a way that lines up with our gifts? I think that if we had more communities like that, I think it would make a difference in our communities. I think it would make a difference in the world. 
And that's, the, again, John gives us a blueprint for that sort of community. And listen, some of you, you're living in that sort of community. We have thriving missional communities and groups and other things. Some of you, you're like, yes, I'm in that community. You're speaking my language. I know how life-giving that is. And I hope that this series just put winds in, wind in your sails and encourages you to, to lean into that more. But I know that for a lot of us, we're not. We're not living in that kind of community. And listen, the point of this series isn't to make you feel guilty about that. Listen, I live in the real world just like you do. I get the tension of trying to make space for relationships. I'm busying myself with lots of things that leave me feeling drained and disconnected. And I'm wrestling with what does it look like to really lean into community. I mean, you know, we've got two working parents and soccer and school and kids stuff and, and all of that. And we just moved into a new neighborhood and just very, just taking our first steps into what does it look like to establish community in a new place, I get the tension. I get the tension. You are certainly not the only one who doesn't feel it. But I know that trying to figure this out is worth it. I know that trying to figure this out is worth it. So, so I want to figure it out for my family, for all of us, and I want all of us to look at, okay, what does it mean for us to live in community together for, with Jesus at the center and to join him on his mission? So, With that, on behalf of my brothers on the teaching team and all the men and women who lead this church, I want to welcome you to the book of 1 John. I would like to congratulate you on surviving that terribly long introduction. And here we go briefly, 1 John chapter 1, page uh, 1021, if you're using a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. I warned you, he gets right into it. Here we go. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. Pause. That which was from the beginning. John here is making a clear reference to Genesis chapter 1, the very first words of the whole Bible, which tell us in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then it's a reference back to the opening line of his gospel, the gospel of John, where it says, in the beginning was the word. And if you're new to this, the word, that's a reference to Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John, at the beginning of his letter, is emphasizing a key point from his gospel, and that is that Jesus has existed from the beginning. And that Jesus came in human flesh. Do you understand? Jesus did not come into existence in a manger in Bethlehem, right? He entered human history at that point, but he has existed before all things. And this is a, this is an idea that scripture teaches us in different places. Colossians chapter one tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And he says that by him, all things were created. Jesus is not part of creation. He is the creator or A favorite verse of mine about Jesus, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. For he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Oh, and by the way, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. How's that for a job description? Jesus isn't part of creation. Jesus is the creator. And then there's another passage in in John's gospel. In John chapter 8, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees, trying to help them understand kind of who he is, and they're having a hard time with it. And, And Jesus, in this big crescendo moment, trying to help them understand, like, hey, I've been around for a lot longer than 30 years. He says to them, before Abraham was, I am. Saying, Abraham, who's been dead for a really long time, I was around before him. I'm around now, and I'm going to be around a whole lot later. I am before all things, and in me all things hold together. And just quick, funny, I think it's funny, Bible note, is that Jesus says this, and it says the Pharisees responded by picking up rocks to throw at him. 
don't know if they like keep them around or like how that works. Like, like you do, like, we don't like what you're saying. So, and the Bible just goes in. Jesus escaped another day in the life, I guess. So Jesus is before all things. But then from there, the language starts to get a little bit more personal. Jesus says the one that was from the beginning, we have heard him. We have heard him speak. And we have seen him with our eyes and we have looked upon him. This is getting more and more intimate. These, these two Greek words, I can see somebody as they walk by, but I look upon them in relationship. To look upon is to closely analyze and understand. And then he says, we, we have touched him. This is John who was with Jesus at the last, who, who reclined against him at the last supper. John who, who, who was there at the cross when Jesus died. And John who participated in the greatest breakfast meeting in the history of breakfast meetings when John and a bunch of the other disciples cooked up some fish with the resurrected Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. John's saying, I've, I've touched him. I've been with him. I've seen him. And we keep going. And we have seen it and testify to you and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. John is saying, you can, you can test my, this is my, I'm putting my reputation on the line here. I'm testifying of that which I have seen, that which I have heard, that which I have touched. I'm not taking this lightly. And I'm proclaiming this to you. I have a message for you. A message we're going to see unpacked throughout this book. And then he talks about what is this message about? This message is about eternal life. And eternal life is one of my favorite concepts in the New Testament. And I think it's also one of the most misunderstood. Because we need to understand that eternal, when, when the New Testament talks about eternal life, it's not talking about something that only happens after you die. Eternal life is not something that begins when you die. In fact, if you read nerdy books about Greek words like I do sometimes, they will tell you that this word in the New Testament that is translated into eternal life, it is not just a temporal word referring to a span of time. It is a qualitative word referring to a different quality of life. Jesus invites us into eternal life and eternal life begins now. It goes on into eternity. Does it have, does it affect what happens after you die? Yes, absolutely. But make no mistake about it. Eternal life begins now. Eternal life is a different quality of life. Eternal life is Jesus at the, is life with Jesus at the center. Famous story in the New Testament, the story of the rich young ruler. We gotta understand, this is so critical to understanding this story and to understanding a life of faith in general. When this rich young man goes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He is not saying, good teacher, how do I go to heaven? We misunderstand the story if that's what we think he's saying. He's saying, teacher, I've observed your life. Teacher, I've observed your followers. Teacher, I hear these things that you are teaching, these radical kingdom values you're talking about. I want to understand that. How do, how do I live into that kind of life? And here, here's my dream. I was just thinking about this. 
here's my dream, is that we as a big church, Bridgeway, our, our society, we talked about this before, it's becoming more and more isolated, you know, the percentages and, and lack of friendship and, and all of that stuff. My dream for us as Bridgeway is that we as a large church would become a collection of communities who live together, who share life together, who have love for one another in such a way that a watching world that is desperate for relationship because they don't know it, but God made them for relationship, a watching world would look at us and they wouldn't have this language, but they would essentially say to us, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How do I join into this sort of life that you have, a life of real community and, and friendship and, and, and purpose and, and all of that. That's eternal life. Don't make no mistake about it. You and I, we have the opportunity every single day to enter into that life which begins now and continues on into eternity. Let's keep going. Continuing verse 3. So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Once again, relational, relational language. He talks about this idea of fellowship. And let's just be really frank about this. Fellowship is like a max level church word. You have never used the word fellowship outside of a Christian context. I know that that is true, <laughs> right? If you get together with a, with a bunch of friends or people who don't know the Lord or you, you know, watch a game or have lunch or do whatever it is you do, and at the end you say, man, that was a great time of fellowship, they are going to look at you weird and not invite you next time, right? It's a weird word. We don't use it, but it's a beautiful word. What is, what is fellowship? It's to have in common. It's to be an intimate relationship. John is saying, I'm writing these things to you because I want you to have fellowship with me, the sort of fellowship that has Jesus at the center. And see, one of the, one of the, one of the things about the local church that I think that can be so beautiful is we can, if we get this right, we can be a model to the world of unity and diversity. Because we're called into fellowship with one another, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different ages, different socioeconomic statuses, different kind of social views and all of this stuff. We're different in a hundred different ways, but what brings us together? Our common faith in Jesus Christ. That we can be people who, who, who show and demonstrate and live out unity in diversity because God invites us into fellowship with one another. Come on now, how many of you have had the experience that I've had where you meet people at church and you're like, we definitely never would have met if not for church. <laughs> there's different people, but I love that, that God brings us together. And so there's fellowship with one another, but there's also fellowship with God. He talks about fellowship with God, that God invites us into community with Him. God invites us into intimate relationship with Him. That, that, that God who took on flesh in the person of Jesus invites us to know Him. Second Peter chapter 1 says that we're invited to be partakers of the divine nature. That doesn't mean we're like mystical mini-gods or anything like that. What does it mean? It means the Spirit of God lives in us. The Spirit of God lives in us. And, the, and, and we have fellowship with God and God who became like us in the person of Jesus. And that we are invited then to put on a new nature, the Bible says, to become like him, to reflect his image out into the world. Why? Because God has invited us into relationship with him. Once again, so much of our faith is about community. It's about fellowship. It does not make sense in isolation. Verse 4, our last verse for today. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The point is joy. The point 
is joy. At the end of the day, the truth of the gospel, the truth that there is a creator God, that that God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, that he lived a perfect life, that he went to the cross, that he died in our place for our sin, that he rose again, that he ascended into heaven and will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. That is meant to bring us joy. And that joy is rooted in God's radical love for us. I want to tell you something that is incredibly simple, but that I think a lot of us struggle with. A life of faith is not going to make that much sense to you, and a life of faith is not going to be that interesting to you until you come to grips deep in your bones with the reality that God loves you. I warned you. like, Yeah, that's super bad. You're like, Brian, why are you even saying that? Because a lot of us struggle to understand it. That there's joy for us and it is rooted in God's love for us. And Jesus is the one who makes that possible. Jesus is the one who makes all the difference. Because of the work of Jesus in our place, we can be competent in God's love for us. He calls us to himself. He invites us into community and he invites us to participate in his work in the world in a way that is life giving, joy-producing, and kingdom-advancing. Now, as we wrap up, I just have one, one final thought for you, and then we'll be done. If we were to take a secret poll in this room, and we were to get, we were to get everybody's income level, and we were to plot, plot all that out, everybody, everybody in the room's income level, and then we were to also plot out everybody's quality of life, your income level and your quality of life, my guess would be, and there's a ton of research to back this up, that there would not be great correlation between income level and quality of life. Both would be sort of all over the place, that, that having more money doesn't necessarily make you happier. Similarly, we could take a poll and we could look at how prestigious is your job or how prestigious is your academic institution or wherever it is that you kind of find value out into the world. How prestigious is that? And we could plot all that out somehow and then we could check, check that against your quality of life. And I don't think we'd find much correlation there either. We could look at how much attention do you get on social media. There would not be much correlation between that and your quality of life. There's a hundred other things that you and I devote so, so much time to. And we would realize there's just not that much connection between the quality of those things and the quality of our, uh, and the quality of our lives. But here's what I know to be true. If we were to look at our quality of relationships, there would be a huge correlation between the quality of our relationships and the quality of our lives. We who, if you're anything like me, we're so, te- we're, we're so easily fall into the trap of neglecting relationship when the reality is we are made for community. We're made for relationship. So our relationship with God who loves us and our relationship with people who, the, who mean the most to us, those relationships impact our quality of life like virtually nothing else. So since that is true, and I'm going to steal this line from another preacher I admire. If that's true... And if you were God, and you loved you the way the Bible says God loves you, where would you tell you to invest your time and your heart? Because every moment of your life is an investment. Where would you tell you to invest your time and your heart? I think you'd say invest it in your relationship with God, who was meant to bring you joy, and invest, and invest it 
in a community where you can be, where you can know others, you can be known and you can participate in mission. So I just want to encourage you as one person who's wrestling with all the demands of a, of a busy life, just like you are. I just want to encourage you as we enter into this series. Can, can we in this fall season ask the question, the questions, I should say, what does it look like for us in this fall season to invest ourselves in our relationship with God, to know God more deeply than perhaps we have before? And to invest ourselves in community, whatever that looks like for you. To prioritize those things in our, in our schedules and in our hearts. I think that if we really lean into those questions, I think we're going to like what we find. So I want to invite the pro team to come on up. And, and as we, we finish, I realize we've stirred up a lot today. I know that the sharing about Lance's dad stirs up stuff for, for a lot of us. I know that this conversation about isolation stirs up a lot and just the challenges of community that that stirs up a lot. If there's something kind of related to all of that where you're just saying, man, I, I could really use some prayer. I'm, I'm feeling isolated. Or man, this hearing about Lance reminds me of just of something I've walked through. Whatever it is you're going through, these men and women are here for you and would count it a privilege to pray for you. If you've got something else going on entirely that has nothing to do with anything we've talked about, they would love to pray for you as well. So if you need prayer in any regard, please come see them. Otherwise, let me just pray a general blessing over us and we'll be done. God, thank you that you invite us and call us into community. And I pray that we would be men and women who lean into those questions in this fall season of what does it look like to lean into our relationship with you, God, you are the one, you, Jesus, you make all the difference to lean into our relationship with you and to lean into our relationships with one another, to find a way to create space for relationship and for community and to eventually form community that is able to then participate in mission, to participate in your work in the world. God, in order for us to do that, we need wisdom because we live busy lives. We have lots of different demands and everything else. So we pray, Holy Spirit, for your wisdom to help us to lean into those questions appropriately. Because, God, you have made us for community, so we want that for ourselves. We want that for our brothers and sisters. We want to be a witness of what community can be to a watching world that desperately needs a touch of your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.